Welcome to Troubadours on Trek. This is your captain speaking, Grace Pettis. I'm a big star. Trek fan. I'm also a working musician and a songwriter. I review episodes of Star Trek with other musicians and music industry professionals. We share an episode of the greatest science fiction series of all time. And they share their songs and road stories with us. New fandom is created. Our Spotify playlist, Like the Universe, continues to expand. Guys, guys, we're being hailed. Now don't you worry, baby. Don't you worry, My guest today is Sarah McQuaid, a UK-based Irish-American singer and songwriter. Sarah sings and writes songs and plays acoustic and electric guitar, piano, and she drums as well. After moving to Ireland in the 90s, she lived and worked there for 13 years. Uh, so Ireland gets to claim Sarah McQuaid as well, even if you're in the UK now. Um, and uh, Sarah's songwriting is celebrated, award-winning. She's well-known also for her distinctive guitar work, especially using dad-gad tuning. Super cool. Um, also, you've had number one albums on the folk charts in the U.S. And in uh, 2020, when your spring tour was cut short, I have no idea what that's like. Oh, wait. Yes, I do. Um, <laughs> due to COVID-19, you launched a very successful crowdfunding campaign that financed the filming and recording of the St. Burian. Am I saying this right? St. Burian sessions? Yeah, that's right. Um, a full-length live concert, obviously without an audience, um, in the beautiful medieval church of St. Burian. Same name. Uh, just up the road from the cottage where you and your family live now. Um, and so the album and the concert film were released to lots of critical acclaim, and that was in October of last year, 2021. So I'm just going to sum up this little this little intro by reading this quote from Pop Matters, because I think it's a really good one. Uh, Captivating, unorthodox songwriting, layered satin vocals, enthralling, harrowing arrangements, a gateway into a true innovator's soul. Sarah McQuaid, <laughs> welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Grace. I love that quote. <laughs> it's, it's possibly really good. my favorite quote. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, one of my questions I had for you right off the bat is like, I saw that you worked as a music journalist and a magazine yeah. editor. So, you know, unlike most of us musicians, you've actually been on both sides of the, the like album release PR machine, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. That, that must be so interesting. Like, what, what is that like for you? Yeah, well, it, it was brilliant. Um, I felt so lucky that I had been a music journalist for years before actually becoming a full-time musician. Mm. And and so I kind of knew right away. Well, first of all, I knew right away that journalists love to get information from artists. They just want something to write about, you know? And if you can yeah. make their life easy by just sending them the info that they need and sending them access to good high-res images and all the info that they need, they're going to love you. you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, that, that's great because that was my next question was yeah. like, what advice would you give independent musicians who are out there trying to reach journalists and get coverage of their work? You know, I, I have a, a publicist now through my label and we hired a PR team to to do my last record, but like that is a very new thing for me after like 10 years of really knowing nothing about it and just trying to do it myself. So, and I definitely have a lot of very talented, hardworking friends um, who are sort of mystified by that whole process. So like what, what advice would you give? And that's a great piece just to start off with, just make sure you're giving them something to work with. 
Um, did you have anything else you want to add to that? Yeah. I mean, like, first of all, like the press release, um, journalists, uh, a lot of them are, well, all of them are incredibly busy and pressed for time. Mm. So if you can give them a press release that's that they can just basically copy and paste yeah. and send off as an article. So include quotes from yourself, you know, like in your press release, say, mm. you know, mm. such and such and such and such laughs, Sarah, you know, <laughs> and, and, and it seems really hokey when you're writing it about yourself and like putting words into your own mouth. As it was awesome hearing you like say that sentence and then laugh. Yeah. <laughs> Very meta. Yeah. Uh, that's yeah, awesome. so and so Sarah exclaims. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, you don't have to do it. Says is okay. It's like, like, oh man, like, like I when I was a magazine editor, I used to delete half of the emotes, you know, laughs, chuckles, and replace them with says, says, says. It is okay also to say says, you know. But, yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah. If I mean, and they do, they do. I mean, I've lost track of the number of times that. You know, I, I get a, a Google alert saying that there's a new article about, you know, some tour I'm about to do. And bingo, there is my press release exactly mm-hmm. as I wrote it with yeah. the reporter's byline on it. And then and people comment and go, oh, wow, what a great article. <laughs> exactly. I was going to say, it has the advantage of like, you know, the review being exactly what you want it to be, <laughs> you know? Yeah, 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 totally. So do that. Send them, you know, go ahead and send them. I mean, they, they're not necessarily going to use what you send them. Mm-hmm. But if you give them something they can use, and if you include links to immediately accessible, downloadable, um, high res images, um, I don't, I don't enclose the image itself because sometimes mm-hmm. people have low bandwidth or whatever, not so much anymore, but, um, you know, it used to be you could really aggravate people by sending them a, an attachment or some email systems will block mm-hmm. attachments either. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah. So yeah, send them links. I, I should do like a little seminar. On this you really should. I mean, like, honestly, you could pitch yeah. that, to like, I don't know, festivals, songwriting degrees at universities, like people would, cause it's, it's definitely a question I get asked all the time. And I'm like, hmm. you know, I'm just making this up as I go along. Like back in the day, I would write my own press releases and bios and, and try to edit them to where they sounded official and, and kind of do those things. But you just sort of pick it up by like reading articles on the internet and stuff. And you never really know if it's working or if like, Things like, should the subject be in all caps or like, like just there's all these questions you have when you're starting out. And yeah, so I think, I think that would be a really valuable workshop. I do the really old school thing where I put for immediate release in all caps at the beginning, Mm -hmm. just because that's how I was taught to do it. (laughs) Right. But then I feel like some young people feel like you're yelling at them when you do it. Yeah. It it may well be that people look at that and go either, God, she must be really old. (laughs) Or she must be angry. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But no, I, but that is, that's the rule. Yeah. So I don't know. Yeah. And then ends with a hyphen on either side of it at the end. Again, I don't know whether anybody does that anymore, you know, but are you, are you a stickler for grammar? Is grammar yeah. a big thing? Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> My mom uh, is an English professor. And so, yeah, it's, it runs in our family, I think. Um, oh yeah. Punctuation and grammar are important. You know, they matter. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And you can find yourself, do you find yourself screaming at, you know, signage? Yes. <laughs> Rogue apostrophes. Have you seen that shirt that's like, um, let's eat 
comma grandma and it says like commas save lives. <laughs> yeah. Yep. I always thought that was a good one. Yes. Um well anyway, uh yeah, so I know on the music side of things that you know, you've been in this game for a while and you've been independent for a while and um you you've mentioned in like other interviews that you've sort of struggled to find a genre that describes your sound, you know? Yeah. Um, has that always been the case or like you know, what, how do you describe it now when you have to do your elevator pitch? I say I'm a singer-songwriter, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I, I struggle. And I, you know, um, when I made my first album, um, I was living in Ireland and I was kind of immersed in the whole trad Irish scene and had been playing trad Irish music for a long time. And I'd written the guitar book about that. And so I made a an album of mostly traditional Irish material songs and tunes and one of my own songs on there. And the funny thing is I actually I actually pitched that album to um to some record companies and mm-hmm. uh and um I I I met a guy who was you know working for Sony in Ireland um who actually gave me some money to do some demos of Aww. of more original material and he oh, wow. said to me you know, we don't want you to release this album of trad Irish material because it's just going to mark you out as being a traditional Irish artist mm. and you're a really good songwriter and you're you're never going to get out from under that label of traditional music. And, mm. uh, wow. yeah. and you know, that that's just going to mark your, your career if you bring out this album. So what we want to do is buy this album for you. We'll, we'll pay you all of the money that you spent recording it. Um, We'll buy the album from you and we will put it away. And, you know, maybe someday it could get released as a kind of historical piece, but basically we want to buy it and not release it. And we want to put you into development and, and just pay you a salary. You'll get paid a a salary and you can write songs and uh, work on songs. And um, yeah. Amazing. And I said, no, (laughs) Oh, you said no. Okay. okay. I said no. Um, and, you know, half of me thinks that was, you know, the biggest mistake of my entire career. And half of me feels really glad that I did it. Right. But right. they were totally right about one thing, which is that um, given that I eventually was going to move towards becoming primarily a singer songwriter and writing original material. It was a really, really bad move to put out a trad album as my very first album Mm. because I I went through then this, this hell of writing to, um, you know, writing to venues and stuff and, and having half the venues say, well, you know, we, we really focus on singer songwriters and we don't want you because you do trad. And the other half saying, well, we really focus on trad and you're a singer songwriter. So yeah. we don't want you. <laughs> you know? right. Right. And I really, really struggle with that. And I still struggle with having places, you know, despite the fact that I've released since that first album, I've released five more albums, which focus on my own songwriting and Mm. none of which have had a single trad song on them. And I still get people going, Oh, so you do trad. (laughs) I did one album in 1997. (laughs) I've done nothing like that since. So yeah. Yeah. But the thing was when you're a young artist and you know, you're just, you're, you're still just really finding your voice and, 
And you, you know, I remember like my first record, like I didn't have a clue about production or whether it was a folk album or a country album or an Americana album or a pop record or, you know, and, and I was really trusting my producer, Billy Crockett. Thankfully I had a great producer, but you know, I really trusted him a lot in kind of shaping the sound that I had on that first album. And like every album that I've made since then has been, you know, influenced by the decisions that we made on that first one. And, and, and you're right. Like, like those first reviews that I got really kind of set the tone for a lot of the rest of my work. And like my last record was probably more like a Americana rock album than anything. But, um, I'm like forever a folk artist because my dad's a folk musician, number one. And that first record I made was like squarely in the folk world. So yeah, I mean, it, it's it's tough because you make these decisions as a kid. It's kind of like when you're in college and you pick, you pick a major when you're 18, you know? Yeah. And then you're just like, you're making so many kind of life, um, not defining, but life, um, you know, influencing decisions at like a young age. Um, oh, yeah. I yeah. mean, here in England, it's even younger because when you're, when you're, um, 15 going on 16, you pick what three subjects you're going to do A-levels in. Wow. And then everything else gets trashed. So I have a 16-year-old who is studying um, English literature, philosophy, and history. And that's it. And that's it. Wow. No maths, no no science, no, you know, and... In some ways, that's kind of great. <laughs> and in mm-hmm. other ways, it's just like, whoa, no foreign language. No. I mean, as a 15-year-old, a re- I would have loved yeah. that. But, yeah. but also, yeah, yeah, it's difficult. Mm-hmm. But there you go. That's that's how the, the system works here. And then unlike America, where you pick what university or college you want to go to, and then you declare a major, mm-hmm. here you have to choose what subject you want to study at the point of application and you apply to do history or to do, you know, archaeology and anthropology, you know, or whatever, right. you know, that's that, that, and, and you're, and you just apply to do that one subject. So there is no, you know, in America, you have your first two years where you're doing kind of multiple stuff, you know, mm-hmm. that's, that, that, no, it's all you're totally specialized. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so and, yeah. And drinking. <laughs> um, yeah. No, that's that's a really different kind of system, isn't it? Um, well, speaking of sort of your international, interna- how things are done in America versus the UK and, and sort of all of your international perspectives, um, I know we have the UK, we have Ireland, we have American connections, but you were actually born in Spain. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. My father was Spanish and my mother was American. And um, I, I was born in Spain, but I, I, we, I was like just over 18 months old when my mother took me back to the USA. So I don't remember Spain at oh, all. Wow. Yeah. So the, did you the, grow up speaking Spanish at all? Or? A little bit. And I kept, I, I, I spoke less Spanish <laughs> the older I got, you know, <laughs> yeah. apparently I can still speak Spanish with a really convincing accent that oh. makes people think that I actually speak the language properly. Well, that's handy. Which is interesting. So it's like it, the the actual kind of pronunciation must have kind mm. of seeped into my consciousness, you know, yeah. back when I was first learning to speak. Yeah. But I couldn't I couldn't hold a conversation in Spanish at this point, you huh. know. But well, I'd love really to learn it again properly. But yeah, you 
Yeah, no, but that's, I, I think that's interesting and that, that kind of stuck with you all these years later. And, um, I think also like a lot of musicians sometimes are, are quicker at, um, the sort of the sound of the language, that part yeah. of learning a language, you know? Um, so maybe that's the case for you as well. Um, yeah. It's just, it's just ear training. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. Right. Right. Um, and I know that you, you grew up in Chicago. Yeah. So like, I just, I'm really like, I'm putting it all together, you know? So you've got this Irish influence, this Spanish influence. What kind of music were you exposed to in Chicago? Well, my mother, um, like, like your folks was really into folk music mm-hmm. and sang and played guitar and played piano. And she taught me how to play both instruments. And she was really into kind of old school folk music. Like she had all those you know, the Smithsonian Folkways records, mm-hmm, the, right. the kind yeah, of, they're totally. like really heavy LPs on mm-hmm. this really heavy vinyl, um, a kind of smaller, slightly smaller than a normal LP. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know what they're called, but anyway, she had loads of those by these, all these obscure, you know, folk singers collected by whoever and she, Jean Ritchie as well. By, and, uh, collected by uh, Lomax, right? Alan yeah, Lomax. yeah, Lomax kind of and other people. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff, you know, but these like recorded in the field, you know, right, right. folk songs of the Appalachians, you know, <laughs> all that kind of stuff. And um, yeah, and so, and, and she had... Uh, you know, Peggy Seeger's first album, oh, cool. um, American folk songs and ballads, which I listened to incessantly. And, uh, jo- Joan Baez's first album as well was another favorite of mine when I was really, oh, cool. really little. I could just sing my way through that whole album. Um, Peggy, Peggy so, Seeger ended up in the UK as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah there's a, there's a, there's Old a trend, yeah, right. <laughs> which you and I get to be part of. <laughs> well, you're not in the UK, you're in Ireland, but you know, crossing the pond. Right, right. Well, you know, I mean, an, an American folk, music is comes from so many different parts of the world i mean obviously there's a lot of its um heritage that is, can be traced to africa and that part of the tradition is so important and, and often neglected and we don't really talk about it enough but also you know i think the part that a lot of americans are are more familiar with the history of is is the irish and you know english and sort of the british isles that influence on american folk music and a lot of the tunes like have similar melodies or words or it's the same song just sort of like rewritten a hundred times that cross the Atlantic somehow um you know you have some instruments from Africa like the banjo and then you have other instruments that are from the west you know and and uh so or just you know like the the tradition of writing ballad songs of just like verse 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 like if you go in any pub in Ireland and you hear like the Shano singers you know it's it's just like telling a story verse 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 just like a Bob Dylan song yeah. Um, yeah. So you can, you can really hear that influence and you can kind of get why that border is sort of permeable, permeable, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, Fiona Ritchie, uh, wrote a really good book about that phenomenon, about the sort of, you know, the movement of music back and forth across mm. the Atlantic, which actually I get mentioned in, which I'm so excited oh, cool. about. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man, I'd love to check that out. Book. Yeah. yeah. The, the book is called Wayfaring Strangers. Oh, great and, title. <laughs> yeah, wonderful title. But but she talks about, you know, uh, and actually it's co-written, I should say. It's 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 Fiona Ritchie and Doug Orr, who's a who's a lovely guy um from from North Carolina. Mm. Um who oh, I've I've met a few times, both both in 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 Scotland and in in the U.S. Um, and uh, yeah, Fiona invited me to sing at the launch of the of the um, uh, of the book at the Edinburgh 
book festival, which is kind oh, of a cool. subset of the Edinburgh Festival. So I got to go up to Edinburgh. I've heard of the Edinburgh yeah. Festival. That's a big yeah. deal. Oh, yeah. a big deal. Yeah, it yeah. was amazing. It was Very totally cool. amazing to be invited. And um, really fun. But yeah, she talks about that, that how the music traveled both ways, uh, mm. you know, both from, mm. you know, England and Ireland over to America and then back the other direction. And, and just really interesting to see the different kind of influences. So cool. Yeah. Well, um, you know, and so you've, you've been working, you've been a creative, um, in the music world independently for many years and then, you know, chugging along, you're just, you're playing, I don't know how many shows, but probably a hundred, 200 a year, something Mm -hmm. like that. And then the pandemic kind of halts everything as it did for all of us. Um, and in my, like, I don't know, just my observation of it in a lot of my friends has been. I mean, obviously there's the kind of financial devastation that we have all felt um, from the venues to the, you know, all the people who work in music, you know, publicists, but also booking agents and, you know, bartenders. I mean, just everybody. It's this huge system, sound engineers. Um, So there's that part of it. But then like, there's also the kind of the, the effect that it had, I feel like on people creatively, you know, sort of existential problems aside, a lot of my friends sort of fell into one of two camps, either just like a ton of creative output um, and just sort of this angst or anger or whatever it is just sort of like channeled into their art or else um, just cocooning and just kind of drawing in and and hibernating and, and taking time to really let it, you know, ferment and like, and find some new stuff. Um, And I've had friends who've kind of gone both ways I feel like I've gone both ways at different at different times in the past couple of years. Um, what was it like for you creatively, like from March 2020 through 2021? Well, it was a bit of both um, in that I totally lost any interest in trying to write new material. Mm. I, I just couldn't, I, I just wasn't up for it, you know? Um, just, yeah. you know, I had a bunch of songs that I had been working on and and I've... I just put them all to one side. Wow. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm only now kind of starting to think about, okay, maybe now I can finally get back to actually writing some new material. And I'm starting to get ideas for songs again and note them down, which is amazing. Because I think for me, not being able to get out and perform live, just, mm. it, it just knocked, um, yeah, not really knocked that side of things out for me and I was able to do other stuff like I did um I got an arts council grant to do um to do some uh music composition lessons and and training in music theory and that Mm. was a really good thing to do and also some uh you know some home recording tuition and stuff like that, um, which, which enabled me, basically I hired my sound engineer to teach me how to record at home, Amazing. which gave him some income as well, which was really important because, because, you know, he just lost all this work and, right. oh man, I, I felt so bad about that. And, um, you know, so, so I got stuff, I, I, I was doing stuff. And then of course I did the St. Burian sessions. I was going to say, you made a record. Uh, you know, I, mean, I made a record. Yeah. <laughs> um, which didn't have any new original material on it, but had 
because I was revisiting stuff that went way back in my catalog, you know, a lot of the songs had really changed since I'd originally recorded them. And some of them I'd added whole new sections to and stuff. So there really are new versions of the songs, even though they're songs that I had recorded previously. And then, of course, I did a couple of covers that I hadn't previously recorded. Um, So... Yeah. So, you know, I, I was able to kind of channel my creative energy in in ways that, that, that worked and that advanced me along the path. And I feel like I'm, I'm in the long run, I'm probably going to be better for having done all that, you know, for having had a chance to revisit all that material, for having had a chance to do the intense kind of music theory study, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, which actually I'm still doing. um, Great. I, I, after the Arts Council grant ran out, I, I applied for uh, a, um, a similar grant from an organization called Cultivator, and which I'm, I, I'm still, I've still got funding from that, and I'm doing these weekly, um, just straight ahead, and not so much composition as just straight ahead theory lessons. Because I realized when I was doing the composition that actually I should have, I should have gone back a step further and really. Um, really kind of solidified uh my grasp of music theory because which which again is going to be a help ultimately like i still have this long-standing project where i want to write um a uh, I, I want to put out a book of my songs but a lot of the time i don't know what chord i'm playing <laughs> yeah. and and i'm starting to yeah, finally <laughs> now get a grasp on okay this is this is how you figure out what chord it is right you know which is fantastic <laughs> so, i figured it out by just yeah. like plunging out the notes figuring out what they are on a keyboard and then like putting it into like a widget online yeah corderator yeah. exactly but that's the thing was it. the thing was you know how that thing would you do that and then it would tell you various options based on right. the notes right and, right and sometimes you'd go well i don't know i don't know <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. and, yeah and i'm actually starting to finally get a grasp on it um so you know now you, you're so, like okay yeah. i can have this option that yeah i had a friend um or have a friend you know present tense but i i'm not really in austin at the moment but uh i have a friend in austin dave madden and uh he's an amazing keyboard player and songwriter and singer and this was years ago when i was kind of just getting started in writing songs and playing out and you know my entire crayon box was like four chords you know what i mean maybe five or six and i you know i i'm pretty i'm pretty proud of the amount of mileage i got out of those four or five chords um because you can make a four chord sound incredibly different depending on the note that you're singing over it and like whether oh, yeah. there's some tension or whether it's expected or whatever. Um, but he would just sort of marvel at for me, like how any, any song could just, was just boiled down in my head to like four or five chords. Like if I heard a song in the radio, I could just, you know, play it in four or five chords. And for him, music was like this really expansive thing where, you know, he'd hear a song on the radio and he would hear like that it was like this fifth kind of version of this chord that had like this extra note in it or this, you know, it was like it was like a seven chord or or it was diminished or, you know, it had a bass note that was this or whatever. And so like a C is never just a C, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so, but for me, like chords have always just been, you know, I just sort of, even now I know a few more, but but they're still in my head, just like these basic five building blocks. And they're just kind of a means to an end for writing a song, like a, a one chord I think of as like a, 
a home base or like an answer to a mm. question. And a five is the question. Yeah. And, and, a you know, a six minor is a sad answer to the question, you know, and I think of them that way. Um, so I don't really hear, I don't hear any other nuances, you know what I mean? <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so it's just interesting to me. And, and maybe that's just because of like coming at it as a singer and a writer, um, rather than an, you know, instrumentalist, it's a little different, but I know you have like these interesting tunings where you're getting so much more color you know, in your, in your chords, like, and even if, even if they're just a couple of fingers, I mean, they can be really easy to play, but they're still just like richer and more, you know, complex. Yeah. And a lot of the time I'm not so much playing a chord as a sequence of notes, mm. you know, <laughs> and, and then it's like, okay, well, what's the chord? If I have to put a chord behind that, what, what right. Cause it's it like a finger picking you know? pattern or yeah, something. Yeah, right. Exactly. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. I guess so. that's, that's a different distinction too. Yeah, because like all I do is strum really. I mean, I do a little bit of finger picking, but not really. Um, yeah, that's that's really interesting. How did you get into like dadgad? Was that something that you picked up in Ireland? Um, actually, I picked it up in France. <laughs> but oh, cool. what, hap- what happened was um, when I was, oh, I don't know, like 14 or 15, I was really into Joni Mitchell in a big way. And I was also really into all the Wyndham Hill guitarists, people like Alex Degrassi and Michael Hedges and Willie Ackerman. Yeah. And, and I li- used to listen to the, all those albums and I knew they were all using different tunings. And so I used to just randomly tune my guitar different ways and then see what sounds I could make. And I used to try That's and you know, write these very pretentious instrumental pieces, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like I'm going to pretend I'm Michael Hedges. Like you, you know? do. And, yeah, like you do. <laughs> And um, and then when I was 18, I went to study in France for a year, and mm-hmm. I was asking around whether there was any kind of band that wanted a singer-guitarist, and somebody said, oh, there's this Irish band. Um, their singer-guitarist is moving to oh, England, wow. so they need somebody now, and they have gigs and stuff, so they need somebody good, so... Um, so I joined that band as singer and guitarist That's great. And, and had to learn all their repertoire and stuff. And that was what got me into the Irish music thing and also got me to Ireland. But um, wow. I was do, changing tunings a lot and I was using a fair bit of dropped D. I just really liked mm-hmm, the kind mm-hmm. of sound of dropped D. And we were playing at a festival um, somewhere in France and uh, and a guy whose name I don't know, some, you know, guitar head, um, mm-hmm. came up and he said, I see you're using a lot a lot of drop D. Do you use the dadgad tuning at all? And I said, what's that? And he said, well, it's just dadgad. Do you mm-hmm. just tune the strings D-A-D-G-A-D? And I said, oh, no, I've never tried that one. Let me try that. <laughs> and I just tuned, took up my guitar and tuned it to dadgad and started messing around. And it was like, it was this eureka moment. It was like, there it is. You know, <laughs> now I can play that riff that Bert Janch plays on Blackwaterside. And there it was right under my fingers. And, you know, all these, all these kind of guitar riffs that I'd heard and not quite been able to reproduce suddenly were right there. And, uh, I I started using bits of Dadgad almost immediately, and then I think it was only about with, within a couple of years of that I just discarded every other tuning, and <laughs> and was just playing exclusively in Dadgad. That's awesome. I, I had like a Dadgad moment, um, but for me it didn't really it didn't really stick. I don't know. Maybe I'll I'll find it again. But it was, you know, somewhere around my second record, and um, 
I was talking to uh, Megan Burt, who's a really good friend of mine and co-writer, and she just kind of had this sort of badass edge to her songwriting. And I was like, what are you doing? How do you do that? How do you get it to sound so cool? You know? And she she was just, she was like, oh, you know, you just drop it down. And she takes that E and just drops it down to D. And like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and then, you know, and so I played around with that and I played around with dropping the other E down to D. And so they have like the double drop D. And, and I wrote a couple songs. I wrote one song called You're the Cowboy with, um, in double drop D with a partial capo on the second fret. Okay. Um, and it was, it just gave it this really interesting kind of cool sound. And, and yeah, and I definitely explored that. There's a few other songs on that record. There's one called Moving On that we wrote together. And then there's another one that was, let's see, um, what was it called? Anyway, there's a pretty love song on the record that was in Dadgad, I think. And yeah, so I definitely had like that moment of like playing around with it. But for some reason, I just sort of ended up going back to standard tuning. I don't really know why, to be honest, but I kind of migrated that way. And maybe I'll, maybe I'll mess around with it some more. This is sort of inspiring me to try yeah. it, <laughs> try it again. But, um, but yeah, so I know you've got kids and, uh, I know that you watch Star Trek with your kids, yeah. um, because that's how, that's how this came about. You were on Twitter and, uh, you saw, I was posting about the the podcast and you were, you were all over it. You were like, you know, me and my I kids. Like, oh my God, Star that's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like there just have been like a couple of guests on the show that actually reached out to me about coming on. Like it's, that really has not been the norm. This is a very niche kind of podcast. <laughs> and, uh, and mostly it's been me talking my, my very patient friends into like, into watching Star Trek. Um, so yeah, it was it was delightful to to be reached out to. Um, tell me about watching Star Trek with your kids during the pandemic. How did that How did that come about, and what did they make of it? You know. Oh yeah, well the, it, it was a, it was actually pre pandemic. I have to say it was it was okay. um, it was it was quite a bit before that. It was when they, when they were much younger. Um, I mean, when the kids were really little, I used to read aloud to them every night, and mm-hmm. then they got to be kind of I don't know. 10, 10 and 12, or maybe eight and 10. I don't know. They were kind of, they, they got to a point where it, it just didn't feel right doing the whole reading aloud thing. Mm -hmm. And so we started watching stuff together, you know, and we, we, cause we, we, um, we didn't have a TV, but, but, you know, we, we had laptops that we could set up and, and so it was always streaming. And, um, and we, you know, we'd usually find a series and then watch our way through that whole series. And we were watching Third Rock from the Sun. Nice. And, and of course, William Chatner comes on as the big right. giant head. Right. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, Virgil, my husband and I were both like, Oh my God, it's Captain Kirk. And the kids looked at us. I was like, who's Captain Kirk? Oh, Captain no. Kirk. Who's Captain <laughs> Kirk? Oh, well, here we go. We can't and, let that pass. <laughs> we can't let that pass. And, and we discovered, um, that, uh, Netflix, um, at that point, and, and I think it's possibly still does. It certainly still has, still has the original series here in, in England. The UK. In yeah, the, the UK. Yeah. That, that in the American. UK, that Netflix had every episode of every series of Star Trek. Right. So we just went back and we watched it all and we watched, um, you know, just watching kind of one episode a night, you know, before the kids went to bed. And, right. you know, so we watched the whole original series 
and, and we watched the next generation. Yeah, yeah. I think, as I say, I think they're somewhere in the 10, 11 10, range. 11, yeah. yeah, kind of. Mm-hmm. So, so probably about the age I was when I was first into Star Trek, you know? Yeah. How did you, I was going to, that was my next question is like, did you grow up watching it? And like, did, which of your parents was into Star Trek and how did you get into it? Oh, totally not my parents. Oh. Um, yeah, no, I, I was, I'm I'm old enough to remember the original series of Star Trek being on TV. Oh wow! Um, you know when I was like, when I was like ten, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was like fifth grade. I was friends with a bunch of other nerdy kids in fifth grade, <laughs> and you know, boys, mostly nerdy boys. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's funny because what the main one that I remember who was like so into Star Trek that he had like a, you know, a Star Trek shirt that he wore to, to school every day <laughs> was a guy called Yosh Najita. And that guy is, is now um, a full-time musician, you know, oh, making wow. interesting electronic music. Well, he should definitely um, come the on name. your show. But yeah, he should. Big Empty Field is his band. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it's so funny because, you know, back in Mr. Wilson's class in fifth grade, you know, we were into Star Trek and they were more into Star Trek than I was. I have to confess. I kind of watched it because, because the other kids would be talking about it in class. Mm -hmm. And so I used to watch it, you know, at home sometimes, but I wasn't, I wasn't as into it as they were. And, but it was more when I got to be a little older, I guess, I guess I was maybe in my, um, 20s when I, when the next generation came along and it was like, Oh, Captain Picard. Hello. <laughs> yeah. That was that was a Star Trek revival moment for my mother as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Jean, thank you, Jean-Luc Picard, for generations of women nerds. Um, oh man. Renewing so, your interest in the series. <laughs> and I just loved the next generation. And I found it hilarious too. Yeah, it was really You funny. know, there were like there were so many, you know, all the you know, all the stuff like, you know, the Riker chair maneuver and, you know. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I remember when I first found that on YouTube. It's just, I had to show like everyone I knew it was the funniest thing I'd ever seen. If you guys and, don't know what we're talking about, uh, for those of you listening, just, just do a YouTube search for Riker chair maneuver and let the magic happen <laughs> and the picard maneuver as well that one i actually <laughs> maneuver, was, yeah. yeah i hadn't picked up on that i i did actually notice riker's way of getting onto a chair you do you know, know why that happened i know the story behind that now oh um, no what's the story so he had like some kind of an injury and so he just did it like one time during filming of some episode i forget which one was the first one and you know just thinking somebody would notice or comment and like no one said anything. Like everyone just like <laughs> just you know acted like it was normal. So then he just decided he would keep doing it. So he just kept doing it okay. <laughs> from then on. Oh. And like at some point, somebody asked him about it. But yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, he originally did it because he was sort of like injured and he was just like trying to find a different way to get into a chair. Um, yeah. That's what I heard. I don't know if that's true, but that's that's the story I've heard. Yeah. So so yeah then. So it was next, it was always next generation for me, uh, but, and I, I didn't really, I didn't stay with it for the other series, but then. Okay, when like I was, Voyager and Deep Space Yeah, Nine. but then watching it with the kids, we did, you know, mm-hmm. we watched every mm-hmm. series in order, you know, so we went on awesome. to Deep Space Nine and then we went on Voyager and so on. And, and actually I really got into it and, yeah. and it's funny because I think I'd seen an episode or two of Voyager on TV and just not been really into it could just you know 
couldn't couldn't kind of get involved. But coming back to it, you know, having been through the whole thing, actually, I got I, I kind of really liked a lot of Voyager. Oh yeah, yeah, you know. Totally. And uh yeah, and then just we went on and, and we've continued um watching um you know when 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 the, the more recent uh you know Enterprise and Discovery and all that. Yeah. We, we we'd finished the whole series by then, but we had to go back and, and, and when you know when new stuff came became available, we, right, we watched right. that. And yeah. I'm so excited for do you know about Strange New Worlds? It's happening. No. Oh, oh man, it's coming in May. It's gonna be okay. great. It's uh, Captain Pike from the original oh. pilot. All right. They're basically giving that that original crew, you know, their own series, which is pretty cool. Oh, cool. Yeah. So look out for that. Um, right. But I guess we should probably dive into this episode yeah. because we're, we've just like already burned through so much time. It's just so fun talking to you. <laughs> you're going to be um, you're going to do lots of editing. <laughs> lots of editing later. Yeah. Um, well, so let's talk about this episode. And I, I threw in a dad pun for you because uh, we know it's going to be a good one. Oh. Uh-huh. <laughs> just cringing over there. Um, I had to do it. Uh, so it starts with this fake invitation to uh, Colony Cestus III yeah. um, with, by someone named Commodore Travers and who has a personal chef, which I love that. I really oh, that, want that I really bit of, like a whole side series about these two people. But That bit of dialogue. Oh, my gosh. You yeah. Know, between, <laughs> I, I, I have a new – my new favorite Star Trek quote, actually, is, Doctor, you are a sensualist. You're a sensualist. I love that one. You're pointed ears. Here's I I am. <laughs> one moment, for sure. Kind of <laughs> um, yeah, and, and this is kind of like some a fun tie-in, but uh, speaking of Deep Space Nine, which you mentioned earlier – um, there's a, a love interest for Commando, Commander Cisco, like his, who eventually becomes his second wife, Cassidy Yates. Do you remember this character? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So she was from Cestus Three. Oh. So yeah, which I never caught before. No. But so uh. that sort of implies that, you know, they worked out their differences in the colony, you know, uh, reemerged there, I guess. So that's cool. Oh, cool. Um, and uh, another thing that I picked up online is that uh, <laughs> the the name Cestus comes from the uh, Latin. It's a Roman boxing glove that's fitted out with deadly weapons such as spikes and used by gladiators in the arena. And that's you can thank IMDb for that. Um, oh. So that's fun. So that sort of foreshadows, you know, like what the what the story is going to be. Arena, about. Yeah. right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, so when they get there, they find out Cestus three was actually destroyed and the messages were faked and, you know, there's just like smoking ruins. Um, they they run for cover. Go ahead. (laughs) Did you, I was going to say, did you have that moment when you see them get into the transporter and you see a guy in a red uniform Yeah, uh, and you just go, oh man, he's a goner. Nothing good. good. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Lang, Kellowitz and O'Hurley. Yeah. Yeah. Which, um, they, I mean, they are such famous red shirts that they, they have been immortalized in this meme, <laughs> which is really? like, yeah, it's like the three of them walking with Kirk and McCoy and Spock. Um, and if you do like a Google image search, search for uh, Star Trek red shirts memes, like you will get an image from this episode. Um, because it's just like, I think it's like a meme is something like, you know, three guys in red shirts beam down. With, Although, you know, two of them are yellow. The, it's oh, just, they, it's yeah. just it's just Hurley. He's in the red shirt, so you okay. know he's a goner. Maybe and they the other two, Lane and yeah, Lane and um, and, yeah, and and, and, and oh, are, uh, yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, they're they're um, in yellow. 
They're in yellow. Okay. They're in yellow. Yeah. Lang doesn't make it either, but um, yeah. <laughs> Kellowitz, as far as we can tell, Kellowitz, Kellowitz survived. survives. Yeah. yeah. He kept his Kellowitz yeah. about him. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. But Lang's just laying there. Oh. <laughs> bad oh you are bad oh man but but yeah when they get down to the surface and then kirk the point at which we learn hurley's name is kirk saying hurley stick with me yeah and i think right. i just i just you know you know how you speak to the screen at times you know when you're right. watching it's like says, sorry hurley <laughs> you are doomed, <laughs> yeah, doomed. and he's yeah sure enough like it's it's like seconds later he gets yeah. vaporized i mean at least they got names they don't always get names yeah. Yeah, <laughs> but um, but yeah. So uh, there is a there is a one survivor too from the the attack, which is yeah. interesting, and uh, he has like shock and radiation burns and internal injuries, yeah. and somehow he just like made it outside behind a rock. We're not really yeah. sure, but there's this one survivor. But um, and uh, yeah, O'Hurley he's like our first casualty, um, yeah. and he he just takes a couple steps and he goes. Captain, I see something. And then he's just like immediately vaporized. Yeah. So but I did kind of have the second where I was like, should you really be yelling? <laughs> yeah. You know? And standing up, you know, yeah. everybody's like hunkering down behind cover. And he just stands right, right up and goes, Captain, I, you know, <laughs> right, exactly. oh, man. like that was, I, I don't know, sort of asking for it. But um, so while all these shenanigans are taking place, uh, Sulu is in command, which is very cool. Mm-hmm. Um and there's a lot, of, I don't know if you, if you realize this, but there's a lot of firsts in this episode in terms of the terminology. So, and, and some other things that are established and like things like, uh, aft phasers. Like it's the first time there's any aft weaponry oh, reference okay. in Star Trek. It's the first time we've heard the expression photon to- torpedoes. Oh, really? Oh, um, wow. Also the word federation and the word Starfleet. Like all wow. of that. We're in this episode first, which is very oh, cool. Wow. So it's a very, I like to think it's not like necessarily, like the plot is not, you know, one of the best Star Trek, you know, storylines ever. There's definitely some, some glaring holes in it all, but it is like a very Star Trek y Star Trek episode. Like there's a lot of yeah. track that's established in this. Also, it's the first time that we've established that you can't beam somebody up when the transport, like with the transporter, when the shields are up. Yeah. So it kind of, you know, it gave us that, that, you know, element as well, which comes up in a ton of episodes. Um, and Sulu's in command, which is really cool. I, I personally love seeing Sulu, you know, behind the wheel. I think that's cool. Yeah. Um, and he does a great job. And so the away team's under fire. And McCoy even says at one point, like, Sulu's an experienced combat officer because Kirk's like, you know... Kirk's being all upset that he's helpless and down there and he yeah. can't be up there with his ship. And, you know, Spock reminds him, I think it's Spock reminds him that Sulu is, he's, he knows what he's doing, you know? So it was a cool yeah. moment. Um, Kirk makes a run for it. And, um, you know, he's doing this zigzag pattern and like things are exploding around him. Did you know that Shatner, DeForest Kelly and Leonard Nimoy all got tinnitus from this episode? <laughs> No, I did not know that. Yeah, all oh, of these. That's awful. They had some bad safety standards on set, I guess. But oh man, yeah, oh, they, they suffered for, from it like forever. Because oh, that's of, terrible. Yeah, these tonight is an awful thing. Awful, 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 awful. awful, awful. Yeah, so yeah, that's kind of crazy when you see those explosions. Just like picture them like loud in your ears, you know. Oh man. Um, but yeah, so he he's making this run for it. 
And then, you know, Spock does the same thing at one point. The, the, the phasers aren't working on the Enterprise, so they try the photon torpedoes, and that's the first time anybody said photon torpedoes, which is cool. Um, one of my favorite lines is when Spock, you know, Spock is commenting on, on the enemy's tactics, and he says, oh, very ingenious. And Kirk says, we'll see how ingenious they are. Give me a hand with this grenade launcher. <laughs> <laughs> it's just awesome. Um, yeah, so, and then we get, uh, we, you know, Kirk calls for Lang, and Lang is no more. And we get Kellowitz instead, and because they got Lang. So we didn't actually see Lang die, but no. he somehow dies. Um, and then the grenade launcher, and that works, and that's all fine. I, I really want to know, though, you know, because after all of this is over and like the grenade launcher works and and the aliens are beaming back up and they're beaming back to their ship to chase them, um, they send down like 30 medical personnel to search for survivors. Yeah. Um, so I just really want to know, like, did they find Commodore Travers and yeah. his personal <laughs> chef? Yeah. Because <laughs> I would like to, I just like to picture this like other story where they're like hiding in the pantry or like knocking, <laughs> you know, knocking Gorns over the head with like, frying pans or something like I just think that would be a fun <laughs> graphic novel just throwing it out there if anybody's yeah. interested in picking that up go for it um but yeah so then they're in hot pursuit you know which is a fun expression that you don't hear much these days um they're in hot pursuit and uh yeah and then the the survivor in sickbay is talking and he's and he's you know he's traumatized from everything and all of this is really building up you know a couple of reviewers have pointed this out that like the Gorn doesn't actually appear in this episode until like halfway through. Yeah. So it's kind of a monster of the week episode, but like the monster isn't even there until you're halfway through the episode. Yeah. Which I think is kind of effective. Like a lot of people have pointed out that this is effective is that, you know, it, you really already hate, <laughs> you already hate <laughs> them at that point, And you're like, you're kind of, you know, they've built up all this like intimidation and fear and hate for this bad guy. Um, and then when when they actually appear and they're in this like the really goofy <laughs> costume, <laughs> you know, I mean, there's it's it's hard to suspend disbelief, but that, yeah. that, it, it does help. You I know? burst out laughing when I saw the creature. Oh my gosh, <laughs> it's just so funny. Um, yeah, but like, but but before the Gorn shows up, you know, there's all this kind of like great build up, you know, and so we get build up about the Gorns, and we also get build up about. This um these weird signals on subspace channels. This is like yeah. where there, you know, rumors of certain strange signals on subspace channels and it's like unscientific rumors and space legends. Yeah. You know? uh, and then you get the ethical discussion between Kirk and Spock, which is really yes. interesting. There's a, there's a lot that's quite topical really about yes, this episode. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about that. And uh yeah, and you get kind of um Kirk kind of going well you know they invaded they're the enemy they you know we've right. got to we've got to punish them right. and you know and spock is kind of going well hang on shouldn't we talk to them first and you know and then in the end of course i mean i mean i, I don't want to like you know no, i mean it's spoil like, we, the thing but you can't really spoil it i mean they, they have <laughs> so, so yeah in the end kirk <laughs> learns his lesson and and goes yeah no these these people actually thought they were being invaded they right, saw themselves right. as defenders mm-hmm. so you know the so we did wrong by, you know, contemplating just, you know, 
Wiping destroying their ship without asking any questions. You know, we should have right. talked to them and diplomacy right. as the answer. It's, you know, so, it's like, oh, this is, this is good that all this yeah. is being said. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I, and you know, I am Grace Pettis and I approve this message. Uh, but that said, like, I don't know if I totally bought it, like in terms of just like the plot. Cause I was like, okay, on the one hand, like, yes, you know, I get that they had a legitimate grievance. Um, they had a reason to be upset. But they just like murdered everybody on the colony, even when they when the colonists like were like, spare the women and children and like we surrender. And they just like didn't take any prisoners of war. They didn't, you know, they just killed everybody. So yeah. I'm kind of like, yeah, yes, but no. Like I, <laughs> I I agree with like the premise, but I don't know that I totally buy it in terms of the plot. But that's a small thing. But oh, um yeah, yeah. but yeah, no, I definitely take your point. But I definitely, I love that the episode is like raising those questions, like you're saying, because like, yeah, that's a good conversation. To have. <laughs> um, I think it's also interesting because it's, it's sort of casting the Enterprise and the Federation in this role of like space police. Yeah. Which, you know, in some episodes, they're explorers. Um, in some episodes, like uh, Balance of Terror, they're like soldiers, you know. Um, and then in this episode, they're space police, which is a different kind of job. So um, I thought that was interesting. Yeah. And yeah, all of that's really cool. I think it's it's a good episode in that it, it raises a lot of those those questions. Um, but I, I did love kind of getting back to like the Metrons when we were like foreshadowing the Metrons and like talking about this like unscientific rumors and space legends. Yeah. That really appealed to me because it just made me think of like, you know, old seafaring days, you know, yeah. exploration, like when there's like rumors about like these weird, you know, creatures or these strange lands and like interesting people that live there. And, and you can't really bring back that much evidence because you, you can't take photos or recordings. So you're just like, you're the Spanish explorer or colonizer and you're, you're trying to draw or describe an alligator or something, you know, yeah. it's like, and maybe you're just making a bunch of shit up, you know, and nobody can call you on any of it. Because, like, <laughs> nobody knows. And so I just, I kind of love, I'm taken with the idea of, like, space explorers being, like, these guys just drunk in bars, like, on space stations, just telling all these exaggerated <laughs> stories about, like, Klingon women or Romulans or whatever. Um, you see that in, um, oh, in, in the... Uh, the next generation. Um, yes. There's, there's, you know, in the bar. You know? Yeah, forward. <laughs> there's yeah. a lot of with Guinan. There's a lot Guinan, of discussion. Yeah. You get, you get the kind of crusty old space, you know, <laughs> right? Space <laughs> travelers, you know, right? Yeah, talking no, about I, stuff. I love that. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's like my favorite part. And like in Deep Space Nine, when you have like Quark's bar. Yeah. And all the kind of seedy characters that they get. That oh, was the thing yeah. I loved about Deep Space Nine because it was just because it was on the edge of Federation space, it wasn't so like their image wasn't so clean. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like there's money there and there's, yeah. <laughs> you know, and there's a little debauchery and there's, you know, yeah. I thought that was cool. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I, I really like the Ferengi. <laughs> <laughs> love the Ferengi. Yeah. I love them. I love that they kind of got a makeover too in Deep Space Nine, but yes. they weren't so. Yeah. You know, like in Next Generation, I, I'm sort of torn on the whole Ferengi thing because on the one hand, I think they're a great idea for for characters and like, you know, like you have this whole society that's based on like commerce and capitalism as, yeah. as their moral good, I think is is like a brilliant idea. But I'm also like a little conflicted about it because I do feel like they're anti-Semitic. Yes. Um, yeah. 
And it's like yeah. kind of obvious. And and I have a hard time getting past that. But I will say that in Deep Space Nine, they they sort of humanized like their culture and they, you know, they they kind of they gave them they they sort of gave them more dimension and yeah. and uh so I thought that, that was good. But um but yeah, anyway. Um so Kirk's ordering the ship to to go faster and to catch up and Kirk's like, let's kill everybody. And um, and then they get scanned. And uh, there's there's this weird scan in Ahura, and her eye makeup looks amazing in this episode, yeah. I will just say. And, and, um, her, and her lime green hoop earrings. I love the earrings. Every yeah. time they make an appearance, I get excited. Yeah. Um, but she's and she's talking about this uh, this weird scan, and it's not, you know, there's no hostility. It's just like this weird scan that's steady. And um, so Kirk basically ignores it. And you know, they're catching up and right when they are about to, to um, catch up with the ship, the ship is just frozen in space. And there's a wonderful moment of Star Trek shake. <laughs> yes. Like, oh, <laughs> yeah. Every episode, it's like, here it's we great. go. It was great. <laughs> um, and then oh, they're and, just frozen. Yeah. And speaking of Uhura, um, did you notice it was uh, when she stands up, you know, when they've just had the been frozen and all that, and she stands up. And and you suddenly see quite clearly that she's actually wearing like matching, you know, underwear that matches her dress, which I had never really <laughs> noticed before in any other episode. It's like, oh, yeah. It's, yeah, no, it's, okay. it's there. It shows up from time to time. Yeah, yeah for sure. Um, I think there there's some people who have commented and, and said that they they feel like Uhura's moments in this episode are are pretty limiting for her character and kind of, you know, there it's she's sort of uh I don't know. It's a little uh, sexist at times. Like just she screams, you know, when when the alien shows up, and she sort of yeah, oh, she the scream a little is hilarious. Of, yeah, yeah. There's some damsel in distress stuff happening, which you know, like oh. there's there are better episodes for her, but but yeah. Although when when Kirk and Spock are having their disagreement, mm-hmm. um, and there's a, there's this moment she where gives you them see this look. she gives them this look, yeah. And yeah. which they immediately respond to and say, okay, let's, let's quiet this down. You know? I, I love <laughs> we'll that moment. I'm opinion. so glad you brought that uh, yeah. up. Yeah. I love that moment. And there's so many moments like that with Nichelle Nichols where yeah. I feel the like the writers like boys, or the just like doesn't give her enough to work with, but she just makes the most of it. Like with her yeah. facial expressions, she's such a good actress um, with that, you know, like she just, she can say so much. The last episode I did was uh, um, the, um, uh, oh, the one with Trillane, the uh, Squire of Gothos, where you know they're they're beamed down to this planet. There's this kind of Q-like character, like from yeah. Next Generation, and she, you know, there's this moment where he's like saying something really racist, and and she just gives him this look, and it's so great. Yeah. And it's like there's no dialogue at all, but she just says so much in that moment as an actress. Um, so I just think she brings so much to the role. And it's great that she does that because it gives that character a lot more depth um, and dimension. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. Not always the best dialogue moments for her, unfortunately. No. Sometimes we get some good moments, but um, maybe not so much in this episode. But anyway, um, the Metrons, yeah. you know, what do you think about the Metrons as bad guys? What did you, 
or not as bad guys, but as, you know, as, main well, as, as intergalactic policemen, really. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like we have concluded. Right. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, you had the whole kind of superiority thing, which, you know, it, it that kind of reminded me, you know, a little bit of Q, actually, the kind of withering, uh-huh. you know, you primitive life forms, you, uh-huh. you know, all that. Um, and then when the Metron is, I'm getting ahead of myself again, but when, when you eventually see the Metron, he, he looks right. just like um, Caligula and I, Claudius. Yes. Did you <laughs> notice a, that? <laughs> I didn't, but that's a great description. I was thinking like, he's just really fabulous. You know what I mean? Like yeah. that dress is just like so sparkly and it's, you know, I guess it's a robe, you know, but they, in my mind, they're just like these blonde Grecian guys in sparkly dresses, which is yeah. like very fun and way less intimidating than their voices on the intercom. Yeah. Would you to believe. And um, it turns out there's a reason that they look like that, which is that um, the name um, Metron comes from the word uh, Metatron and Metatron was an important angel in the yeah. archangel Michael's angel army. So he's, he's supposed to look like this angel. Yeah. Um, and it literally means instrument of change, which is interesting, but cool. um, in, in Greek, but also the, the, uh, the Metron angel is played by Carol Sheln, 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 Sheln. Oh, okay. Anyway, I can't pronounce it correctly, but she was a, a dance instructor and a dancer. Um, but voiced by somebody else. Voiced by, I'm not sure if it's voiced by, I'm not sure. I would have to look into that. I know the, the voice of the Metron when they spoke over the ship intercom was a, definitely a different actor than the voice yeah. of, of, than when it, the Metron appeared in person. Oh, okay. But it, it may just be two people. I don't know. I'll have to look that up. Um, but yeah, that, that's kind of, that was interesting to me too. That was definitely not what I was expecting when we got all the tie dye and like the sort of intimidating (laughs) talk on the ship, you know? Um, and you said, you said policemen when you, when you, we mentioned the Metrons, which I thought was really interesting because like their whole beef with, or I guess interest, they're, they're kind of mild, you know, um, condescending interest in humans and Gorns is that, these two alien species have brought in like violence into their sector, into yeah. their part of the galaxy, and that that's not allowed. Yeah, and that's their beef with us, and so therefore they're going to punish us, or they're going to like they're going to create a situation where we can settle our differences, captain yeah. to captain. Which, I mean, so far so good, right? Like, I think if you know if we could just force world leaders to fight it out, like that would probably be better <laughs> than like just sending tons of people to die in wars. But um. But then the thing about it is that, like, this fight between Kirk and the Gorn doesn't actually settle the dispute because the Metrons are then just going to vaporize the losers. Like, they're not saying, okay, the Gorn's won, so the Federation has to just leave Gorn space. Like, they're just going to kill everybody on the other yeah, ship. Yeah, which is really weird. And they're so, supposed to be anti violence. So, it, right, yeah, they're supposed I, to be anti violence. I, I struggled with that. <laughs> and, and, like, the whole, and this is what I mean by, like, plot holes. Like, the whole yeah. moral, you know, message of this episode is like, not to just like, you know, because Kirk's whole that Kirk's whole decision to just be the policeman and and not let it go unpunished and just like fire first and ask questions later was wrong, and that Spock was right, and that you know it should be diplomacy and all this stuff. Like that's like the moral lesson of the of the episode. But if our beef with with the Federation is that they're just being like these aggressive lawmen in this kind of wild west part of space, you know, the Metrons are doing the same thing. Yeah. Like they're doing the same thing that they're upset with 
the humans and the Gorns were doing, just like in a more ceremonial way or something. Like, yeah, and and then when Kirk said, you know, Kirk shows mercy, and they're like, oh, it's really good that you showed mercy, and then they go. We can, we can, we can well, kill them now if you want. Yeah, I eventually landed on like, they must just be testing him again. Yeah, like, yeah. Just making sure. But like, <laughs> yeah, I thought that moment was weird too. It was like, yeah, I don't know. And uh, you can't teach anybody a lesson if you kill them, you know? No. So it's, it's just like, it was a strange, it was a strange thing. And I thought about my stepmom. And I thought about how when me and my brother George would fight when we were kids, she would just force us to hug each other for like 20 minutes. Oh, gosh. And it was so awkward that it worked like a charm because by the end of it, we'd just like both be laughing. We couldn't, you can't help it. It's just like so physically yeah. comedic. You know what I mean? Um, so I think that's what they should do. Yeah. We should just like force people <laughs> to just like hug each other. That's what the Metron should have done. Yeah. Um, yeah. And actually then, you know, because Kirk <laughs> talks about his physical revulsion, you know, for the right, Gorn. And you see that right. bit where they're like grappling up close, you know, and Kirk is like, Ugh. <laughs> oh, that scene is so good. It's just yeah. like the best fight scene. It's a famous, it's a really stupid and famous fight scene um, that has been referenced many times. And like, you know, the Gorn just swipes his arms like just very, very comically slow. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I mean, he's comically slow from start to finish, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it's like technically it's part of like their species that they're not agile or whatever, but yeah. Yeah, it's just, it looks so silly. And like Kirk two fist punching him and, you know, yeah. like double, double fist punches in the back, which is like yeah. a patented Kirk Fu move, you know? It's just, it's just great. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> um, I love the part like where he, he he picks up this giant you know club to like hit him and then uh, a giant like tree branch or whatever and then Kirk picks up like this tiny little one twig and then he just throws it away like the rock and the bigger yeah. rock it's just funny um, but yeah and it also kind of begs the question like the Gorn's like picking up these huge boulders like they're just these little rocks and throwing them at Kirk but then like if he's really that strong why can't he just crush Kirk like a bug when he has Well, exactly. Yeah. 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 No, that bit where they were grappling and, and it's like, or use his big jaws, you know, he could just take a big bite out of Kirk's head. I know. know? Yeah. And he doesn't. And he doesn't. It doesn't make a ton of sense. Yeah. But also, you know, another kind of bit of like a a continuity issue, like sometimes they call it a planet. Sometimes they call it an asteroid. It really can't be an asteroid. There's tons of, you know, life on it and stuff. And, um, but yeah. And then we have this, this amazing costume too, which we should probably oh, talk about. Yes. <laughs> it's his little toga. Yeah. In the, in the unedited version, like you can yeah. see the zipper. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> but in the oh. new, like remastered, they, they make his eyes blink. Did you catch that? Oh no, I didn't catch yeah. that. It's yeah. like a thing. It's a thing that I noticed it right away because it wasn't that way in the original. And yeah, um, yeah. They, there's not much they could do really, <laughs> but they yeah. did make his eyes blink. Um, I mean, so the outfit. In case you're wondering, the Gorn itself was created by uh, watching, but the uh, the outfit, the little you know halter top mini short outfit, <laughs> was, <laughs> was designed by William Ware. Um, Tice, I think that's how you say his name. It's T H E I S S, famous Star Trek costume okay. designer. We talked about before, but I always pronounce his name wrong. Anyway, interestingly, the Gorn head now belongs to Ben Stiller. <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> 
<laughs> bought it at an auction and yeah, he's a massive Star Trek fan. So just a little fun fact about that. The Gorn is played by four uncredited actors, um, but the voiceover work is Ted Cassidy. So all the kind of grunts and hisses. Yeah. That's Ted Cassidy. We've talked about him before. He, he did a lot of voiceover work for Star Trek. He played Ruck in What Little Girls Are Made Of. That was the one with the, the giant weird android and like the purple penis stalactite. Do you remember this one? Oh, no. <laughs> I have to, I, 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 I'm concluding that I have to watch all this stuff again because there's so much <laughs> I don't remember, you know. And I well, know I, I watched it all, but, you know. I, I like... I look. I know way too much about this, <laughs> but but yeah, um, he plays Rock in that episode, and he also played Lurch in the Adams Family. Oh, um, wonderful! Yeah, so very famous actor. Uh, and then there's Gary Combs, who did a lot of work for Star Trek too, and he's one of the actors that was in the Gorn suit. He was claustrophobic, so he had not a fun time making this episode. But he was a trooper, and and they got it mm. done. Um, the episode was shot. This 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 part of the episode was shot at Vasquez Rocks. Oh, yeah. Which is, you know, you know, you know what it is. It's that famous kind of jagged rock silhouette. Um, yeah. And it's in several episodes. It? It's in California. Okay. Right outside LA. Um, and it's been in a lot of episodes of Star Trek. It's, it's We talked about it when we did Shore Leaf with uh, my manager, Fabian Prez. But that was the first episode that it showed up in. But Arena was the next one. And then after this is the alternative factor. And it is also in season two in Friday's Child. Um, it's also in the movie, the Star Trek four movie Voyage Home. Um, okay. And it's also a next generation in Who Watches the Watchers, which is the episode about the the kind of primordial Vulcans. Do you remember this? Yes. Yes, okay. I do remember that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, that was. And the, yeah, that was where we had the whole prime directive thing yes. going. Yes. When yes, did yes. The, when did, I, I'm curious. You, you probably know this because you know everything. When did, well, when did the I prime directive come in? Um, the prime directive was definitely an original series invention, but I can't tell you off the top of okay. my head which episode established it. Um, uh, but I will put that in the notes. So for those of you listening, I am not all knowing. (laughs) (laughs) I do make a lot of mistakes in this podcast, believe it or not. There's at least three or four in like every episode where I say something wrong or, you know, I just got confused over episode titles or whatever. I put all of it in the notes. So I put all of my corrections and anything I want to add in the notes section of the podcast. So if you go to troubadoursontrack.com, you can see for each episode, there's like a note section and it is kind of interesting stuff sometimes. So if you're bored and nerdy, I, I encourage <laughs> you to check that out because, like, I I don't claim to like know everything. Um, and in this case, I don't know which episode established the Prime Directive, but I will look it up and I will put it in the notes section. Cool. Um, but anyway, back to Vasquez Rocks. It was also in Voyager in two episodes, and it's also in an episode of Star Trek Enterprise. Um, it's also in the 2009 and 2012 new Star Trek movies, um, and it's also in Star Trek Picard. Did you, did oh. you, you've been watching Picard, right? I started watching it. I have to, I, I and then I, I, I got busy got and stuff, you know, but got sidetracked, but I have to go back to it. Did you catch Vasquez Rocks in Picard? No. And I'm going to look for it. Okay. <laughs> so, I'm not going to give it away because it's kind of cool it. when it, when it shows up and it's, yeah. it's, it's not pretending to be something else like an alien planet. It's itself, which is cool. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. that is cool. It's also featured in uh, the Bill and Ted movies. And I don't know if you remember Power Rangers, if your kids were like this age range or no, not. No, they were. Okay. I mean, I, I, know, I know about Power Rangers, but nobody, nobody here ever, ever watched Power Rangers. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. probably more my generation. But yeah. yeah, there was the 
Vasquez Rocks was like where the Power Rangers had their headquarters. Ah. <laughs> so it's also there. Um, but anyway, another fun thing about this part of the episode is like the recording tool yeah. that Kirk and the Gorn are using. It's actually a painted electric hair clipper. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Just a fun Good to know. Yeah. So, yeah. And I, that you, you mentioned that kind of monologue that Kirk has where he's talking about being, you know, having this instinctive revulsion for reptiles, you know, I just felt like Kirk monologued a lot. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, and I know the aliens told him to, but still like, it's just, it's funny. And it's just like, whenever he says this thing about like, you know, he's withstood all these attacks that would kill a normal human. Like you just roll your eyes. You're just like, okay. Like you're just talking yourself. Come on. You didn't try really that. (laughs) (laughs) You hit him with a rock. (laughs) Super strong guys. He's really, you know, like, it's just funny. Um, so yeah. And also he doesn't know if it's an asteroid or a planet. Um, and yeah, and he's, and he just talks like really loudly to, he'll, he'll stop what he's doing. He's like running for his life, trying to make a weapon. Yeah. And he just stops in the middle of it to just like monologue about yeah. <laughs> the situation. <laughs> and he's not worried at all about the Gorn overhearing. Like it's just, it's really yeah. fun. Or catching um, up with him or, or catching know. up with him or yeah, any of it. So it's very interesting. Also wanted to bring up parsecs. Um, because they're mentioned in this episode, McCoy says yeah. like he's, he's out there or no Spock says in a thousand, cubic a thousand parsecs. yeah. Yeah. So I, I wanted to look that up. Um, and here's the actual dictionary definition. A parsec is a unit of distance used in astronomy equal to about 3.26 light years, which is oh. 3.086 times 1,013 kilometers. So, so a thousand parsecs is pretty big. Is a lot. Yeah, yeah it's a lot. <laughs> so one parsec corresponds to the distance at which the mean radius of the Earth's orbit subtends an angle of one second of arc. So, yeah, I didn't really understand any no. of that. <laughs> you, you kind of lost me three words into that. <laughs> yeah, what I gleaned was it's a long, it's a long ass distance. Yeah. So, um, and I have to blaspheme a bit here and mention the other famous franchise star wars um because you may remember that han solo brags in the moss eisley cantina in the first star wars movie about the millennium falcon making the kessel run in less than 12 parsecs do you remember this ah no i don't but it rings a bell rings a bell it's this famous but, yeah. you know cowboy space bar yeah. swagger moment which is awesome and harrison ford is great in the scene yeah. but it's it's techno babble that makes no sense because it's not a measurement of time it's a measurement of distance so, ah. yeah, my point to all that is that Star Trek wins in the Techno Babble war. Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Star Wars. Uh, but it's also, it's a great scene in either way. Um, another fun science fiction reference I'll just throw in here for no reason is that uh, in A Wrinkle in Time, Meg's father has a nickname for Meg and it's Megaparsec. So, ah, yes, I do remember that. Okay, well, we have to talk about the, uh, the gunpowder bamboo cannon. Oh, diamond. yeah. Like, what did you, what did you think about that part of the episode? Were you convinced? No. (laughs) 
with anybody. And no. would that work? I mean, no, first of all, the, yeah. And, and, and the moment when Spock is watching on screen and there's some white stuff on the rocks and he says, if I'm not mistaken, that's potassium <laughs> yeah. nitrite. It's like, yeah. oh, come on. It's come white on stuff. <laughs> yeah. It could be cocaine. It could be powdered sugar. You don't know. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So the, it's, it, to answer your question, it would not work. And it wasn't really, I know that was a rhetorical question, but for the listening audience, it would not work. Um, and actually, uh, the Mythbusters show. I don't know if you know that show. No. They they did they recreated the diamond gun. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's what they do. They kind of recreate like urban legends and stuff and see if they're if they have any, you know, if there's any cred yeah. to them. Um, and it it was declared not possible because the for several reasons. Number one, gunpowder has to be contained to explode. Otherwise, it just burns. Oh. Um, also, even if he managed to make gunpowder. It wouldn't, it would not. So even if he had managed to make it, it would not have exploded. Um, but also just making it would have been very difficult because you can't just like dump things into a container in random amounts. Like it's a recipe. There's, yeah. there have to be certain amounts of proportions. Each, like, yeah. Right. So the actual recipe, in case you're wondering, is 75% <laughs> potassium nitrate, 10% sulfur, and 15% charcoal or carbon. Um, so also the bamboo cannon would have blown up in Kirk's face. This is the other thing because bamboo is not strong enough, right? This is why yeah. guns are made out of like steel, you know? Yeah. Um, so unless that bamboo was some kind of alien, you know, consistency that was like super strong and tough, like it just would have blown up in his face and killed him too. So not believable, no. <laughs> but very fun. <laughs> um, also like the whole thing about diamonds was interesting because like there's no money in the future, right? So yeah. why, why does he like, you know, he sort of like waxes poetic about all the, you know, valuable diamonds and stuff. Yeah. And it's like, nothing has value. This is, I mean, it has value, but not like, you can't make a fortune on things yeah. because there's no money, but I don't know. So I thought that was weird. Um, yeah. Then, and then the Metrons come back and I have to say their tie dye is very misleading. <laughs> <laughs> Because they are super not chill. Like, um, and sort of to your point earlier, where you're talking about that they kind of reminded you of Q, um, they are just so nonsensical to me. Um, and I feel like they're just, I feel like this happens a lot in Star Trek, where you have like these kind of aliens that are sort of like sort of interested, but I don't know why they're so rude all the time. Yeah. You know, like, why are they ghosting? You know, yeah. like this new phone who does thing. Like, it doesn't make sense. Like, they're they're interested enough to like mess with everybody, but then they're like, they won't answer the phone when you want to talk to yeah. them. Yeah, you know, <laughs> it's just it's interesting, and it happens all the time. Like, I think about like the Corbinite maneuver where that happens, where he's like, "You have ten minutes, and I'm going to destroy you," and there's no discussion. So save your questions yeah. till never. Like, it just every time, you know. Yeah. yeah. Um. So I think that's that's interesting, and um. They and also it made me think about um this is another random brain side street, but uh it made me think about like a like a capital punishment, you know? Um mm. because the Metrons are planning to incinerate both ships all along in in the original script, in Gene Kuhn's original script for Arena, who wrote the script, the Metrons were planning to like destroy both ships all along. Um so even though they said that they would let the winner live. Um, 
that they that the winter ship is a threat, right? Because the, the those aliens are very violent. So that they were planning to destroy both, which makes more sense. Um, but then, then why why then, go through the whole drama with the putting them right. to fight? Which, you know, and right. and also, then that really is just like for their own sick amusement. You know? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> it's like it's it raises this kind of capital punishment argument of like. How do we like our society believes it's wrong to take a life? So therefore, if you take a life, we will take your life. Like it's yeah. there's a fallacy there. Oh yeah, um, big time. <laughs> but you know, and then like so the pro death penalty argument is that the death penalty prevents murderers from murdering again, which I guess yeah. But also you could just lock them up, you know. Yeah. And so that's just like very nonsensical to me. Um, so I feel like the aliens in this episode, like I just, their logic all along, it just really falls apart for me. No matter mm-hmm. how you spin it, it just, I get them separating, you know, I mean, like the, the better version of this is the, um, oh man, I'm forgetting the name, the or, Organe, oh, what are the name, or, Organa, oh, what is this? Okay, I'm forgetting, I'm going to look it up, but they're, they're like these all powerful aliens that, that interfere when humans are fighting with Klingons. You know, oh, and they, okay. they're kind of posing as like as peasants and or villagers who are who are intimidated by the Klingons, and they're pretending that, but they're just hiding their true nature the whole time, and they're actually all powerful aliens, and they like settle dispute, and that's actually how humans and Klingons have peace. Um, okay. So before this episode, like they're fighting, and then after the episode, they're not at war anymore because this alien race interfered. And I'm trying to remember the name of this species, and I I can't think of it. So, but I'll put it in the notes. And sorry, everybody, that that's just like not coming. It starts with O R, and from there I can't remember. Um, but anyway, that's like the better version of the Metrons in my hmm. in my mind. Um, did you find it strange that he had time to make a gun? Yeah. Oh <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, this is the thing. You can you see the um, the 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 Gorn kind of striding along, and it's like, where is he going? <laughs> How did he get so far away? Because surely he'd have caught up with him by now. I know. Also, if he's that slow that you have time to just like make a gun, why not just run away? Yeah, like just run I mean, away, start a new life on the other side of the asteroid. Like he's never going to catch up to you. You know, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, just wait him out. Like it is very odd. It's very strange. Um, you know, th- we have this ending that the episode ends with, uh, you know, the the angel Metron beaming down and being like, "Good for you for being merciful," and like trying to trick him one more time, and he passes the test, and like, "No, no, no, don't kill him," and okay, and then like he, he's rewarded by they both get to be transported like far away from each other, which, you know, I mean like. I guess that's good because like, it's like if the, if the uh, Metrons had just like not transported them far away, would they have just kept fighting, you know, or would they have at that point tried to like have a delegate? Cause there's no, te- I mean, you have to think about how Kirk left their captain. Like he left him like bleeding on the ground with a bunch of diamonds sticking out of him, you know? <laughs> so like he didn't kill him, but like he, he really hurt him. Yeah. And, you know, if the Metrons had just, like, beamed them back to their ships and then left the ships in their original position, like, in attack mode facing each other, would they have then just, like, continued to torpedo each other? You know, I don't know. Like, I, Although, yeah, although seeing as how Kirk 
was beamed back to his ship with his leg miraculously healed and his clothes freshly laundered (gasps) and his face all cleaned up. Maybe the Gorn captain got beamed back to his ship totally unhurt. I love that. I'm going to go with that. I think that's a great take. You know, it also explains the 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 continu- continuity problem with the limp. Um, yeah. So all of that, I, I'm going to yeah, go. Yeah, no with that. limp, no torn clothes, no, you know, everything. He's right. all, and his face, his face is all shiny and clean, you know? Yeah. When, when it was Nobody's like, are you okay? earlier. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, I love that idea. Okay. So we're going to go with the Gorn captain beamed back over and he's fine now. And yeah. that's great. Um and he doesn't have a fortune in, you know, cannon sticking out of him. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So then everything's over and and Spock's like, you know, and and uh Kirk has this moment where he says, you know, we're a most promising species, Mr. Spock, as far as predators go. Did you know that? And Spock has this great line where he says, I frequently have my doubts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm I'm like, I'm right there with you, Spock. But yeah. um Kirk is soup's confident per usual. So, and then, you know, they've got a thousand years to work it out and that's the end of the episode. Yeah. Um, overall, what did you think of arena? That was fun. <laughs> it made, it did make me feel like, you know, God, I, I, I don't remember, especially the original series. I don't remember as well as, as I should do. And I should go back and, and rewatch it all again. You know, I think, I think the next generation I've seen so many times. I mean, there's episodes of that that I've seen multiple, multiple times yeah. <laughs> between kind of reruns and, and, and then watching it back again well but, and that's like uh, the great thing about star trek isn't yeah. it it's like this is why like you i was so kind of pulled into it during the pandemic and like wanted to do this podcast and everything it's like you can always find something you can oh, watch yeah. these episodes a hundred times and always find something and it's so rewarding that way it's such a rich and complex and interesting world building exercise you know it is yeah so yeah i mean that's that's why it's it's great um well, I'm glad you liked it. I'm glad it was fun. I, I think this is was a really good episode. This is one of my favorites. I mean, not because it's like a great episode, but just because it's so silly, it's fun. It's it's in the it's in the category of almost like campy, you know. Oh, it is, especially at the very beginning, that bit of dialogue between, yes. um, you know, oh, you said, you're a They are so camp. Yeah, <laughs> that's your point yeah. of ears or whatever. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, yeah. Well, what what song did you? I mean, I know you've already told me in an email, but tell the audience what song you picked to uh, to pair with this episode. Uh, which song of mine, or which song did I pick that the episode reminded me of? Let's let's start with the one it reminded you of. Um, well, when I first saw the Gorn, I was like, "Oh my God, it's Puff the Magic Dragon!" <laughs> <laughs> and so I decided to be totally silly and and pick Puff the Magic Dragon as the song. And then I went on to YouTube because I was th- I, I wanted to refresh my memory as to what Puff the Magic Dragon looked like, and did he definitely look a whole lot like the Gorn? And he did. I think it's the bow tie. Uh, I think the halter top <laughs> kind of put me in mind of the bow tie on Puff the Magic. Dragon. He's fabulous. Yeah. 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 They're they're both kind of fabulous. And yeah. um and and then I discovered that you can I actually would. watch the TV movie of Puff the Magic Dragon on YouTube, which I did. Yeah. <laughs> Enjoyed yeah. it immensely. It's only like Amazing. it's only like 28 minutes long or something. It's quite short. 16 <sighs> minutes, I forget. It's it's short, you know. I'm gonna it's have to go back and remember. watch that. I, I feel like in yeah. my childhood I get that confused with like the Pete's Dragon thing. Yeah. Like there's just one thing in my head. So I got to go back and watch that. Oh, but dude, um, dude, I think that's a yeah. great pick. That's that's a good call. Way to go. Nailed it. 
Um, <laughs> I picked a really interesting song. I picked a song called Big Lizard in My Backyard. Okay. Um, it's <laughs> if I had known a song called Big Lizard in My Backyard, <laughs> I probably would have picked that one too. Well, I didn't know the song, but okay. I, I did a Google search for songs about lizards because I was like, there has to be one, you know, and there are some good ones. Like there's like several songs that have um, Blizzard in the title. Yeah. But, but the one that I found that was like the best was this one, Big Lizard in My Backyard. It's by a punk band called The Dead Milkmen. And oh, it's okay. from their debut album, also called Big Lizard in My Backyard. Um, which was released in 1985. It's, it's a new band for me, totally new to them. Um, but I really enjoyed this ridiculous song. It's It's got some obscenities <laughs> in it, so just, you know, for kids, beware. It's not Puff the Magic Dragon. But um, <laughs> yeah, contrast. Although some people say that's not true, so whatever. But, uh, but yeah, it's absolutely the right vibe for this episode because it's, it's just, it's so ridiculous and fun. Um, so yeah, that was my pick. And I do want to hear what song of yours we're going to be adding to the Spotify playlist? Well, I picked the tug of the moon because just because that's a song that's all about, you know, planets and stars and gravitation. And Yes, yes, yes. I wanted to ask you about this because I read that RTE interview that you gave back in January. Um, and you said you were inspired to write, write it because of the, the leap second that we added to the New yeah. Year's Eve countdown in 2016 to compensate for the yeah. slowing of the Earth's rotation caused by the moon's gravitational pull. So, like, talk about that, because that's so cool. Yeah, well, you know, there, there was there was a big thing, um, which was in all the newspapers and stuff like that back back at the end of, uh, end of 2016, I think it was, that... Um, there was going to be an extra second added to the countdown on New Year's Eve. And this is like a thing that happens, you know, around about once every 20, 25 years that we have to add an extra second. And the reason we have to do that is because the moon's gravitational pull on the earth is not only causing the tides and actually there's, there's ground tides. I found out when I was reading up about this as well as it's, it's not just pulling on the water. It pulls on the ground oh, wow. as well. And it's actually tugging at the whole planet and just slowing it wow. down. Wow. Yeah. So every hour of every day of every year is a tiny, tiny fraction longer than the one before so it's it. it's not just Time me. Is actually <laughs> down. No, it's not just you. Yeah. Mind-blowing, you know, really. And, um, and because our atomic clocks are, you know, just keeping time kind of abstractly there, um, if we just kept following those, we would reach a point where the sun wasn't directly overhead oh, at wow. noon anymore. So we have to make this little teeny adjustment so that noon is still noon when the wow. sun is directly above us. So we have and, to slow uh, down. And just add these words, extra seconds like, every so to, often. To keep yeah. up with the Earth's slowing down. Yeah. Rotation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. There's just so much that's poetic about that. You know what I mean? Have you read? I yeah. have a book recommendation oh, for you. Yeah. Have you read this book called The Age of Miracles? It's by um, no. an author called Karen Thompson Walker. And the premise is okay. that, like, it's sort of a post-apocalyptic book. Um, and the apocalyptic event that happens is that the Earth's rotation slows down. Um, so it's a very gradual and slow apocalypse, you know. And okay. and it affects the world in all these really interesting ways that you wouldn't think about, like um, circadian rhythms and things like that. And it's great. It's just a really good book because, like, the pace of this book is so slow. And it's so kind of um, thoughtful and, and no, yeah, and it's just, that. 
it's from the perspective of this this girl, you know, who's sort of witnessing the adults deal with this, this girl and her friend. And um, it's just beautifully written. Um, I, I have this theory sometimes that uh, women science fiction writers sort of approach the genre in kind of different ways, in sometimes really refreshing ways. And I think one of the things that that they can do is slow down the pace. Like so, so much science fiction is so like fast paced and action packed. And the pace of this novel is very slow and gentle. Um, also, it's it's very much about the characters, you know, and the relationships. And I love that. So, yeah, The Age of Miracles, great novel. I've got a lot. I'm, I'm kind of looking it up yeah, on the books Yeah, it's, it's right a really now. good one. Um, yeah. So, but it made me think of the song of yours, The Tug of the Moon. And this is on the St. Burian Sessions, this um, this pandemic yeah. record that you made. It's also a, it's a record, but also like a, a video, live video. And, uh, yeah. And I know that you, you made this like during lockdown because the church where you recorded it was like right by your house. So you were able to actually get in and record, which is so cool. Um, and then there's a video of like all 15 of those songs on your YouTube channel, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, there are videos of all 15 songs. Okay. Okay. So if people love this, if people are listening to the playlist playlist and they love this song, they can go and find the video and they can find all the other songs yeah. and videos on your YouTube channel. What is your YouTube channel address? Uh, it's it's just it's just youtube.com stroke Sarah McQuaid. Just S-A-R-A-H-M-C-Q-U-A-I-D. Spell your name out real slow for us. S-A-R-A-H-M-C-Q-U-A-I-D. And if you just put youtube.com slash Sarah McQuaid, there it is. There it is. And also your website is just your name.com, yeah. right? Yep. And Sarah that's where McQuaid. we can find com. you online. Yeah. And also you have a Patreon page. I do. Yeah. I, I'm pretty sure I'm Sarah McQuaid on that as well. <laughs> Great. Yeah. And we will direct people there as well in, oh, the, thank um, you. in the notes. And and yeah, and, and I usually, um, I kind of like release these episodes a month ahead of time on my Patreon page. So all of my patrons get like a first listen. Oh, cool. You know? Yeah, so what I can do is I can give you the the file and you can release it to your patrons as well. And then that way, you know, they can get a first listen too. Oh, that's that is brilliant because I haven't I, I I've been so <laughs> bad with my Patreon page. You know, I started out with all these like everybody who starts Patreon, I I, I started out with all these really good intentions about the stuff yeah, I was gonna and do. Ambitions. <laughs> you know, and yeah. um and and I and I've just um, I mean, luckily, I didn't make any definite promises because you know? <laughs> <laughs> I knew myself to too much. But it's, it is really, it's, it's really tough. Yeah, because we don't have a normal nine to five. Like our schedules are all over the place. Every month is really different. It's hard, you yeah. know. And you're always firefighting. There's always something oh really urgent that has to be done. You know, there's oh always gosh. something like uh, you know every every single working day starts out with well, I have to do. You know, <laughs> right, 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 right. Well, I have to get these three things done, and then I can. Do these other 12 things you never do the other 12 things no, like never you're lucky never. if you get two of the three things done exactly yeah exactly that's that's that. it and it's just, like, <laughs> like when you when you mentioned about that that you had a record company and and a pr department i was like oh, i'm so jealous oh my god <laughs> because, yeah, I, i'm I mean, jealous I know, of me i know <laughs> i said back at the beginning of, yeah. of of this whole thing that i about turning down the deal and i'm glad i did because I, I could easily have been stuck in the whole development of health thing, which I've known Listen, other artists. I've turned down a lot of record deals. Yeah, yeah. Like, like, like it's many at this point, you know. And because if it's not right, it's not right. No. And yeah. you know, there's no point. You, you never ever. I should probably put this in the beginning of the podcast, but I'll just say it now. 
never sign a deal if it's not the right deal. Like just, you know, it has to be the right people. They have to have time for you. The, and also the deal has to be right. And sometimes when you're, especially when you're starting out as an artist and you're at the negotiating table, you have just like so little leverage that, yeah. that, you know, you have to sign your soul away to, to sign a deal when you're 18, you know? Oh yeah. And then you've got these huge expectations to meet, you know? Right, right. I mean, it's, it's totally appropriate to wait if you want to wait. And it's, it's totally appropriate to like come back to the table 10 years later when you have a little more to, you know, to, to, to bargain with basically not bargain, but just, you know, those scales should be sort of equal. Like you're bringing a lot to the table and so are they, you know, when, when it's really off on one side that can cause a lot of problems. So yeah, that, that would be my advice on that. You know? Yeah, but yeah, it is it is tough when you have to when you are your own PR person, your own booking agent, oh God, your own yeah. record label, your own website designer. <laughs> you're much better at it than yeah. I have ever been. Oh. <laughs> you're you're very impressive. It's only because I just work it, at it constantly, and then I'm yeah. still always feeling like I'm I'm not doing enough. But there's only so many hours in the day, you know. And there's only so many of you. There's like one of you. It's yeah. like you have this whole company to run and it's one employee, you know, it's yeah, tough. It and is. It, it's honestly, even with a label and a publicist, I'll say like, like I, I, I will say I'm so grateful to have an incredible team. Like I, my team is the best. It's a small independent label, um, Empress Records and everybody works just as hard as I do, maybe harder. Mm. And it's amazing, but it hasn't like lessened my workload. It's just kind of changed it a little you know? Yeah. Because, um, like my publicist, Jill is incredible. And when we release the record, like she's lining up all these interviews, she's lining up all this stuff. So she needs like content from me, you know, she needs descriptions of songs. She needs blah, 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 blah. So I'm working really hard. I'm just working in tandem with a professional who's doing all this stuff that like, I don't have the skills or network or experience to handle. Which is fantastic, which is the way it should be. Yeah. But, but I think there, there sometimes is this expectation that like, once you sign a deal, like your workload is going to either slow down or just become completely creative. And that's like, not true. (laughs) So I'm just going to debunk that right now. Um, but yeah, but I am really, really, really lucky. I know how lucky I am. I know what a unicorn thing it is. Um, so, but yeah, but I, I think like you're also living the dream, you know what I mean? (laughs) Like the Sarah McQuaid story is the success story because it's an artist who's able to kind of run her own shit and, you know, handle a successful career and, and on her own terms. And I think that's amazing, you know, successful. <laughs> yeah. No, you, you're successful by anyone's, by anyone's measure. And, you know, and, and we, that's another thing we have to debunk is that like success just looks like signing some kind of a deal. You know, success is like having a career on your own terms that brings in enough income to put food on the table. That's success, you know? Yeah. I mean, it would be nice if it actually, you know, if if it enabled one to put food on table without being in a huge debt, you know, <laughs> and yeah. actually do some stuff yeah. besides putting food on the table. <laughs> well, yeah, you know. But, but, uh, but, but yeah, I mustn't complain. I mustn't grumble. It, I mean, it's well, true. as far it's, as it goes, I think you've you've done better than most of us. So, <laughs> so congrats. Okay. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're all very impressed. I can tell you. Um, oh, thanks. So yeah, so thank you so much for for spending your busy, valuable time with us. And uh, 
it's been really a pleasure talking to you. I'm sorry we've gone so over. It's been lovely talking to you. And if I wasn't talking to you, I would have been sending a million emails. And this has been so much nicer than that. Believe me. This has been more fun. Yeah. Oh yeah. And even even just having to having to stop and watch that episode was like it it was like, well, I have to do this for work. I'm gonna sit down and watch Star Trek. (laughs) And therein lies the reason I chose to build this into my Patreon income. Oh, well done you. That is, it it is brilliant. And thank you so much for letting me be part of it. I'm really deeply, deeply grateful. And it's been lovely just talking to you because I remember, I remember, um, hearing you sing in a hotel room in the Folk Alliance conference in Memphis. And I guess it would have been like 2009. I think it would have been 2009. 2009. I was a baby. (laughs) <laughs> yeah so and you were uh, really yeah. really incredibly talented and incredibly um grown up and good at what you do and uh, just phenomenal um Aww. baby which was just well, amazing you. you blew me away um, thank you and, uh, so so yeah <laughs> it's really nice to be actually talking to you at this point yeah it's nice to talk to you as an adult and um <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's been it's been really lovely and i hope we get to hang out more that would be um, really nice come to great well oh yeah let's also i forgot to mention that (laughs) gosh how am i forgetting all these things um yes tell us about your upcoming tour schedule briefly um well my tour um the the uk and ireland tour that i'm about to do um starts on the eight well i leave home on the 18th of april i think the first gig is actually the 21st possibly um should know that really but um so it start the tour starts in April, but then I, I don't actually get home again until the very end of May, the thirtieth of May. I'll be back home again. Okay, okay. Um, and then and then I'll be going back out again in June to do a couple of gigs in Cornwall, three gigs in Cornwall that I'm kind of calling part of the tour, <laughs> even though even though they're separated from the rest of it by a couple of weeks. But I will be away from home for just just over six weeks, um, all told, starting in the Republic of Ireland, and then going up into Northern Ireland and then over on the ferry to Scotland and then down through England, uh, right wow. through the whole country. Um, I get as far Southeast as Kent and then as far Southwest as Cornwall, um, Amazing. lots of places in between. So it's a pretty extensive tour. It must feel and, good. Yeah. Yeah. Which back. is, well, yeah. it'll be amazing. It'll be weird. It, this will be the first <laughs> tour I'll have done post Brexit where I actually had to get a carne to travel to Ireland. Wow. So um, I haven't got the carne yet and I still don't know yeah. exactly what it's going to cost because the cost is dependent on the value of the stuff you bring with you. And it's like, oh my God, my guitar alone. Yikes. I just but, hate um, all of that for you. I'm so it's sorry. horrible. <laughs> it's really horrible. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so yeah, it, it's, it, but it will be nice to be actually, it, and it'll be the first time I will have left the country since COVID. I mean, when, when wow. COVID hit, I was on tour in Germany and I haven't been back. I haven't, I have not left England, um, since. Wow. Um, so, wow. Um, no, that's not true. I went to Wales. I went to Wales, didn't I briefly, but anyway, I haven't left the UK since, um, right, since right. COVID. So this will be the first time doing anything kind of international. And, um, Amazing. yeah, so I hope, I hope it all goes well. I'm, I'm obviously kind of nervous about the COVID situation, especially since it's so sure. rampant right at the moment. Sure. It's a little bit scary, but I'm triple vaxxed and all that stuff. It is, but you so. know, you know, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. We don't have to get into all that, but um, 
It is. And I, and I totally understand that, but it's going to be great. And I'm really happy that you're back. Oh, me too. (laughs) I love, I love touring and I love performing live. It's for me, it's kind of what it's all about. You know, it's the, the whole kind of magic that you get when you're actually in front of an audience and, and they're with you and, you know, there's, there's nothing like it. Nothing like it. Well, Sarah McQuaid, thank you for joining us. This has been fun and uh, we'll see you down the road. Lovely. That would be fantastic. Thank you so much, Grace. This has been another strange new episode of Troubadours on Trek. Don't forget to subscribe on whatever listening platform you use and head on over to patreon.com slash Grace Pettis to join the crew. This is your host, Grace Pettis, giving her all she's got, beaming out. See you at the next Shore Leave. Pretty boys with plenty of